The views expressed in this podcast are solely those of the speaker. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not a substitute for professional medical advice from your own physician. Good morning. Um, We welcome our listeners as well as those watching us on our YouTube channel. My name is Tobias Matei. I'm a deputy editor of the North American Spine Society Journal, and I have the pleasure to have uh, here with me today um, Dr. Maz Hans-Peter Gay, who is the author of uh, an article recently published in SJ entitled Computer Tomography Osteoabsorptiometry for Imaging of Degenerative um, this disease, and we'll be discussing the methodology and results of this paper today. Herr Professor, ein herzliche Willkommen and vielen Dank für Ihre Zeit heute. Dankeschön. Hi. So, will you give us a brief introduction of your practice, um, your academic affiliation, main fields of interest? I know you were uh, at the University of Basel uh, in the biomedicine. Uh, department, but let us know a little bit about your research interest and, and how does how this article fits in, in your overall line of research. Okay, so very gladly. So yes, um, I originally I studied biomedical engineering as a mechanical engineer and then did my PhD in developmental biology at the University of Zurich. And then from this standpoint, I moved to uh, Basel to the university hospital Uh, at, to the Department of Spinal Surgery and did my first postdoc there for four years. And then uh, three years ago, I moved to uh, my second postdoc, which is here at the Institute of Anatomy at the University of Basel. And uh, so during my first postdoc, my main focus was actually um, the regeneration of degenerative disc disease using a cell source, so nasal chondrocytes. And um, I published a paper on this, on the use of nasal chondrocytes to treat disc degeneration. And this uh, publication, along with other work that we did, uh, more or less moved into an ERC uh, Synergia grant, which also incorporated a, clinical, a preclinical trial and a clinical trial phase one for the treatment of degenerative disc disease using nasal chondrocytes. And when I... While I was working in this field, I always a little bit um, was a little bit disappointed with actually radiological methods used to more or less uh, determine uh, disc degeneration and regeneration. Because what we see is most studies usually use MRI or also so uh, just standard um, X-rays. Uh, And they then look at disc height or also the, the black disc syndrome or these kind of things. But per se, this doesn't give us a readout of disc functionality. It gives a description of the disc, but not per se disc functionality. And especially when we look at um, regenerative methods, so for example, cell therapies, uh, which has been used, MSCs and so forth, is that... Um, Patients see improvement, however, not radiologically, or sometimes we see changes um, in the MRI pictures, but we don't see a change in, in pain symptoms, uh, these kind of things. So when I then moved uh, to the University of Basel in the Department of Anatomy, um, my, my boss, uh, Professor Magdalena Müller-Gerbel, she had more or less developed or was part of the development 
of this uh, CT osteoopsoptometry. And she used this so to more or less analyze different things in the past. And I then recognized the potential and said, maybe this would be possible to be used in disc degeneration. So to more or less uh, determine the functional state of disc degeneration and then possibly be used because, as I said, the university hospital also has this uh, clinical phase one trial planned uh, that this could maybe be incorporated into this trial to more or less determine if regenerative potential can be seen using this method. So this has been uh, more or less my, my past in the research field. Uh, everything I did in my PhD has to do with developmental biology and nothing to do with uh, spine research. Yes. So. Perfect. And I, would ju I just would like to put uh, your research in context and, and highlight how relevant it is to our general uh, practice in spine surgery. So um, the, the topic is, um, I'm very interested in this topic, and I think I share with you uh, a narrative review that we ended up publishing um, uh, more than 10 years ago. But the first time I saw, I think it was during my fellowship, I saw a patient with severe osteoporosis, and she had huge disc heights. And the, even the, the signal in the disc was very healthy with a very bright tissue signal. And I was impressed by that in some sense. I was not expecting, I mean, maybe to have normal disc, but those discs seems, seem even healthier than for a young person. So um, we did some research in the literature and we found that the relationship between osteoporosis and um, preserve uh, uh, pre preserve anatomy of the disc or inversely between um, normal uh, increased bone density or increased subchondral uh, end plate density and degenerative disc disease was reasonably established in the literature. Some, some papers dating back to, to the 60s um, saying that patients with osteoporosis had increased disc highs. And then I remember in the paper, we discussed some of the pathophysiological mechanisms for that. Um, but I think, I mean, your, 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 your study uh, has to be understood in the context that we see a lot of patients with osteoporosis. There seems to be a clear correlation between osteoporosis and, and preserve this high and delayed degeneration. And uh, computed tomography, um, osteoabsorptiometry seems to be a, a promising technique to uh, evaluate that, that relationship. So... Um, one of the things that, that, that caught my attention, and I just want you to um, let us know, especially from us in the clinical field, we usually use DEXA scan as a method for evaluation of osteoporosis. So let us know a little bit more about what this modality of CT is. I understood from, from, from reading your paper that basically you're using um, a post-processing method of the CT scan and evaluating the house field units and then just um, evaluating the surface of, of the, the, the end plate and, and compartmentalizing those house field units, but you may be able to give me a, a, a better description of the technique. Of course. So um, if we look at DEXCAN, uh, DEXCAN more or less measures the overall mineral density in the entire vertebrae. And a very critical factor actually in this method is also the partial volume factor. So how much of the, of the total volume is pure bone. So in this sense, you get kind of a, a ratio. So when os uh, uh, um, osteoporosis appears, that more or less you lose the partial bone volume because bone 
regresses. And we are, with the CTOAM, uh, we are really, really visualizing the end plate calcification. And this is different in the sense, so the partial volume ratio does not play an inherent role because we're actually looking at the cortical bone. And now, um, and what we're looking at is actually what we call the, the loading history of the joint. So it, I think it can be a little bit described as if you're walking in the sand, every time you walk on the same space with your footprint, you leave an indentation on the sand. And depending on how heavy you stepped on the sand, you'll have different depths of, of indentation in the sand. And you walk over the same area of sand a hundred times. Then you have a, a historic kind of preservation of how you're walking uh, more or less is pressurized. And the same thing actually happens in joints. So if we look at the, the, the end plates or the subchondral bone plates, we see that depending on how load so, or stress is perceived on the load, that this leaves kind of a loading history. So, and this indentation in the sand is more or less the mineralization uh, that is found in uh, this sub um, chondral bone plate. And this has been uh, shown in different methods and also correlated with uh, pressure, um, so invasive uh, and destructive methods to actually determine how resistant are these uh, subchondral bone areas and uh, has shown clear correlation in previous studies that this is the case. So how this process actually works is that we um, uh, get the CT scans and these CT scans can then be 3D reconstructed. We then uh, just turn the, the vertebrae in a sense that we have a perpendicular view on uh, the surface, the joint surface area. And then what we defined more or less as the subchondral uh, bone thickness is about three millimeters. And then we more or less just look at these three millimeters um, and then say, show us where the densest mineralization part is in these three millimeters over the entire surface area. And this then correlates with the uh, load and stress that is put onto this joint. And this is then um, more or less projected as a densiotogram onto the surface of the joint area. I hope. Uh, yeah. So it seems. I mean, you're saying that there's there's a correlation. I mean, you're estimating the axial load or the historical pattern of axial load um, over that segment through the bone mineralization. And I remember when I was uh, uh, performing my initial research that it seems seem also like uh, it seemed uh, almost like a vicious cycle because um, it seems that the increase um, um, mineralization in the subchondral uh, end plate. Uh, it's not only a, a surrogate marker of the axial load, but it also interferes with what we call the vascular pathway. Pathway. Uh, we know that most of the disc, the disc is essentially a vascularized, and most of the diffusion of nutrients, including glucose and oxygen, is mainly through diffusion. So um, this is this occurs through what we, what is called in the literature vascular buds. And we as surgeons, sometimes we scrap the cartilaginous end plate and you really see that uh, punctuated pattern 
um, with those tiny vessels uh, that, that go through, through that region. So I remember uh, the literature clearly shows that if you have increased uh, mineralization, you have a decrease in those vascular buds. And of course, a, a decrease in the in the diffu uh, osmotic diffusion of the nutrients to the disc. So it's not only a surrogate marker of the axial load, but it seems to be a visual cycle that ended up in this degeneration. Um, exactly. Yes, and and I agree with this point. I think uh, one of the things that is, in a sense, most interesting is kind of the question: Is it the chicken or the egg? Which came first? Is the is more or less a failing of the mechanical properties of the disc leading to uh, a calcification. And this then leads to uh, inhibition of uh, vessel nutrients, osmotic exchange. Or uh, could it also be vice versa that we first, in some sense, have a reduction of vascularization maybe due to outer influences such as smoking and so forth, that then leads the disc to degenerate. And because the disc starts to degenerate, it loses its functional property. And through this then starts to calcify the end plates, which as you say, is a, is a vicious circle. So it starts to calcify. So uh, I, I couldn't really answer the question in this sense, what is coming first is uh, more or less the reduction of vascularization due to calcification the problem, or is calcification occurring because of a reduction of vascularization? Mm -hmm. um, and one thing, so I, I mean, the, the, the topic is very interesting, but one thing I would like to now go through the methodology of your paper and see how it fits in this general framework um, of this field of research. So I understand you compare basically patients with degenerative disc disease and patients without degenerative disc disease. Is that correct? Exactly. So there, I have to say, we, um, so the, the degenerated discs, these are uh, samples that we got, or uh, radiological images that we got from the Department of Spinal Surgery here in Basel. And these patients had both MRI as well as CT scans done. And so this patient cohort is fairly small, just because CT is not a regular method used for radiological um, assessment of disc disease and with, with MRI. So we, we only had a small cohort here and usually already a little bit progressed in age. Um, the patients that we got, or the healthy patients in this sense, um, we had to, in a sense, blindly choose. So these are patients uh, or a uh, radiological image that we got from uh, forensic medicine. So here at the Institute for Forensic Medicine in Basel, uh, all uh, bodies that come in are first x-rayed by CT, and then uh, afterwards they are uh, gone through the forensic dissection. And so uh, we then more or less looked at these CT images and then to a certain degree could assess young patients where we didn't see any obvious degeneration by radiological images, and then use these as our healthy control group. This is, of course, suboptimal. However, uh, if, if anybody, in a sense, can give me uh, a set of radiological images of MRI and CT of healthy patients that have no pain, 
this would be great, but this is, uh, yeah, it, the world doesn't work that way. We don't uh, radiologically test uh, healthy people. So uh, that's what we had to work with. Yeah. And one thing that, that, that I noticed that I think it may be a limitation that needs to be understood and and I don't don't get me wrong, but it, this by no means reduced the merits of your research and, and, and of the results. But I noticed that um, you didn't use perhaps because of the low sample, but you didn't stratify uh, patients in terms of the degree of this degeneration or using, for example, the Freeman classification, which is routinely used. Um, in the same way, I mean, you didn't have, the study didn't account for the modic changes that we know have a substantial impact upon the observed mineralization of the subchondrin and plates. So if you want to just uh, expound on, on those. Of course. Then. So for, we did actually uh, do a classification of the Furman scale. We used the, the modified Furman scale and there the, it was classification three to six. So this is about the, so the classic Furman scoring of about a, a two to like a, a three and a half, I should say, according to the old. But it was very hard just because, for example, in levels uh, thoracic 12 to lumbar one, we only had five samples and these kind of things. And then if we really went through all the, the different mineralization patterns for all the different degrees, mm -hmm. this would have been actually just, uh, yeah, it, it, it would have really reduced, it. first of all, it would have expanded the study extremely because then we would have, uh, so all levels, so all six levels, and then <clears throat> Furman skills from um, two to, uh, or from uh, three to six. And this would then just have split the entire thing that we maybe only would have had one sample for one Furman scale and then maybe uh, in this. So, Yes, it is a drawback, and it is something that we would like to actually look at in, in future studies, uh, possibly. And to the modic changes, so uh, there, we only had a handful of uh, modic changes that we uh, observed in the samples that we got and analyzed, because uh, and they, they were spread out throughout the, the different levels. Uh, that we were analyzing. So it would have been maybe one modic change per level or maybe two and one didn't have any modic change. Um, and there we have to say, because uh, we excluded any herniations or also uh, extreme disc bulging um, from our samples, uh, just because we already said here, the complete uh, mechanical integrity is already lost. And we wanted to kind of see an early um, degeneration process or one where pain comes up and not an observable functionality loss is yet seen. And so uh, that's why we, we didn't then include the modic changes. And that's very understandable. Yeah. We know that it's, it's very problematic to perform subgroup analysis with a study with a low sample, because as you mentioned, you may ended up with a handful or even one or two patients in each subgroup, and then any comparison be becomes very uh, anecdotic. So um, what, what were the, would you uh, tell us um, what were the general findings of your studies and what, what were the things that were maybe perhaps surprising to you and what were the findings you would like to highlight to us? 
So I guess um, per se, this is a, so most, most of the, the findings retrospectively make sense, but at the time, so one of the main things that we saw is that the, the calcification of the end plate that is cranially to the intervertebral disc has a higher calcification level than the end plate that is caudal to the disc. Um, and this is, in a sense, surprising because one would expect that calcification would more or less increase the more low that we have on the body. However, uh, when we take this into perspective, it actually, it, in, in retrospective, it seems clear. So that actually the intervertebral disc through its special structure takes actually the axial load. Uh, then transform this into a radial load and then actually into a tangential uh, force the, that then more or less um, moves on to the annular fibrosis. And so also the other ligament structures of the spine more or less dampen the forces that come from one vertebrae onto the next. So, and this is often uh, described is that actually the the entire spine isn't multiple joints, but one continuous joint in a sense, uh, because actually it's an entire level of dampening mechanisms. So what we really saw is that more or less the disc really dampens the axial load on the underlying vertebrae. And this then uh, seems in a sense also uh, to be uh, the opposite than in level L5, S1. But this isn't in a, in a sense so surprising because the sacrum is actually a fixed structure. And so it doesn't have the underlying dampening mechanisms as the overlaying uh, vertebrae do. So there we see, uh, first of all, a higher calcification in the superior end plate of the sacrum and a lower calcification in the inferior end plate of the L5 vertebrae. Additionally, uh, we see a typical pattern, more or less, um, of the load-bearing system on healthy and um, then unhealthy disc. It changes completely, but in the healthy. And this does change throughout every vertebrae, but they do have a very similar pattern of um, actually the main calcification rim is really in the periphery of the discs with uh, local maximum points actually in the uh, dorsal lateral uh, periphery. And when we then look at S1, uh, we actually see that this is uh, totally changed um, in the superior end plate, that there is mainly actually the maximum load uh, or uh, the maximum mineralization is actually uh, dorsally over the entire, so medial lateral uh, distance, and then moves past the, the median, past the middle of the disc, and then dissipates a little bit more uh, ventrally. And this we uh, more or less lead back, uh, first of all, due to the stiffness of the sacrum without having any um, dampening mechanisms underneath, so no intervertible disc uh, per se underneath that is dampening. And also due to the lordosis that we find in the sacrum, 
And this actually then also leads that if we look at the intervertebral disc of the L5 to S1 vertebra, it's actually more of a chyle than it is um, a disc in this sense. So it's more of a wedge than it is a disc. And so this will uh, most likely also uh, be one of the reasons for this change in pattern. Uh, additionally, what we saw is, so this was in the healthy core uh, cohort, and um, it's, it was very, in this sense, predictable if we understand how the intervertebral disc works. So if you imagine the nucleus pulposus as a balloon and the annular fibrosis as rubber bands around this balloon, if I squeeze the balloon, the rubber bands will expand in axial distance. And actually, so then that through this axis, so the, the, the annular fibrosis more or less being connected to the end plates more or less take up shear stress and this leads to this increased mineralization. Now, when we look at degeneration, we know that the nucleus pulposus uh, starts to lose water, also its integrity, and suddenly this axial force is being, isn't being taken up by the nucleus pulposus anymore, but actually by uh, the annular fibrosis because more or less it's losing water, so the balloon is losing air. Um, and through this, if we're now compressing, we're actually compressing the rubber bands and not making this axial load on the disc into this radial load and then tangential load onto the annular fibrosis. And this is also what we see in, in our pattern assay so that we see that the annular fibrosis uh, area, so this peripheral ring, thickens and extremely increases in mineralization uh, density. And uh, this pattern alters extremely uh, from actually the healthy uh, discs. And also when you look at the more lumber uh, region, so really L4, L5, more or less the entire end plate is completely calcified and no distinct pattern is really uh, recognizable. And the point that you mentioned that you saw a significant difference between the L5S1 uh, segment and the more cranial segments in terms of the pattern, uh, the spatial pattern of the mineralization. Uh, it rate, and you, you supposedly attribute that at least partially to the uh, segmental lordosis at that level. It raises a very interesting idea for future study, um, which is to look at the patterns of mineralization and correlate them with spinal pelvic parameters, such as lumbar lordosis, pelvic incident, or sacral slope. So based on your, what you're describing, for example, uh, it would be possible that patients with an increased sacral slope or what we call those more horizontal sacrum um, would have uh, this phenomenon uh, if it's really related to the increase of the lordosis at the L5S1 level, uh, this discrepancy between the cranial and the caudal segments uh, would be increased. Is that correct? Exactly. So this would be actually a very interesting study, which... Uh, I have to say we, we would not have come up with, uh, but that's then where or I'm not a clinician, so I don't know what is uh, relevant in the clinics uh, per se uh, that I haven't worked with. So it would be a very interesting study, and it's definitely something uh, that we're considering uh, following up on um, with, with what the data we have and maybe more data that we could acquire uh, if, uh, if we get more samples. Perfect. And one thing that you mentioned that I also find interesting in terms of uh, creating some hypothesis for future studies is that it makes sense when you mention that there's a constant axial load over the spine related to the weight of the body. 
And then at every level, the disc work as a cushion and dissipates some of that axial load. So, and that's why, I mean, at least you, tell, you told me that this is one possible explanation why the cranial end plate supposedly is under higher stress and therefore has higher mineralization. And one question that I have, have you observed, I mean, if that makes sense or if that's the paradigm uh, or the rationale for the findings, I would personally expect, for example, a higher degree of mineralization, the more cranial levels, because you still didn't have all those discs at the levels below to dampen those, the, the, the axial load and a lower degree of mineralization as you go down. But I'm not sure if you were able to compare those or, or correlate with the degree of this degeneration, which was also different at those levels. But yeah. So uh, I think it, it's, it's a valid point. And uh, so uh, I, I just, I need to also look actually at the, I have the publication here. So it's actually interesting that we see in comparison, in this comparison, we see that it is actually lower in the more uh, cranial region. So more thoracic area. Um, and then increases in the more lumbar area. And I think there, one always has to think, I mean, the spine, we have the axial load of the spine, but what we shouldn't forget is what is also coming is actually the torque forces by the body of the segment of that spine. So more or less uh, the stomach and what so forth. Um, even in between a vertebrae will lead to more weight on this area. And, one thing we didn't analyze and maybe in retrospect would have been also is uh, to also look at uh, body ma mass index of the people that are being brought. So because if somebody does uh, suffer from adiposis or actually have a, a certain degree of uh, more weight in the belly area, that this then could in further increase actually the, the more uh, dense um, uh, mineralization of the lower uh, end plates but yeah and I, th I think this is then actually one of the, the things so we see higher mineralization actually in the lumbar than in the the cervical uh, the not cervical uh, the more cranial end plates so tell me a little bit about of this method of analyzing ct data because it's very interesting but for example, in your study, in your paper, you mentioned that this may be a useful tool in the clinical practice for evaluation of progression of this degeneration. And I see as a clinician, I mean, the first thing we don't evaluate progression. You see, you, you get new MRIs when a patient has new symptoms and chronic axial low back pain or worsening of back pain usually is not even a good indication for obtaining a new MRI because there's little you can do for axial back pain um, in the absence of radiculopathy or, or neurogenic education. But my question to you is, do you see this being easily incorporated in the clinical practice? How is this post-processing uh, method? Is it something that every hostel, um, maybe if you have a radiology with uh, some training, they could easily perform that um, spatial analysis and provide some guidance on, on the degree of, of mineralization? Because that would be interesting. I can see at least getting that type of study, if it's available, of course, and becomes a, a routine in clinical practice for patients that you were thinking about uh, fu uh, fusing. 
yeah. I can tell you, I, we previously published uh, a study on a classification called lumbar fusion uh, outcome score that we analyze uh, factors for for uh, factors which could predict a, 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 a good outcome after fusion for uh, chronic axial back pain. And we know fusion for chronic axial back pain is a very controversial topic, but there's a very small subset of patients that may benefit. And in our study, I mean, we evaluated the uh, degree of this degeneration, modic changes, and bone scintigraphy. So uh, the bone scan uptake with technetium 99 at that level. And those patients that had uh, uh, our classification as three, which is all those elements present, um, they had a, a, any, and they had refractory chronic back pain they had a very reasonable outcome after a fusion. So I can see how if I'm selecting, if I'm in, in that hard task of selecting those very few patients for whom I would indicate fusion for axial back pain, this may be a type of diagnostic study that I would definitely consider employing. Exactly. So I'll first uh, answer your second question and the first question. So it's actually a very easy method actually to use. So, um, there's a, a software that we use, uh, Analyze, that really you, you read in the DICOM data. Uh, one thing that is, and it's not time intensive, it's actually done pretty fast, but in the end, it does take time, is to more or less choose the, you have to extract the bone that you want. And you do this on every slice. And I'm actually quite sure and quite certain that it would actually be easy to make a program that automatically does this, that one says, ah, I want to have this vertebra, and then a mask is laid out, and then this is corrected for every following image. That one then has actually the, the vertebrae one wants, and then uh, can change into the direction that one wants. And then afterwards, uh, more or less choosing the end plate is also a very simple procedure, and then just saying, okay, uh, give me the, the maximum output of uh, the Hounsville unit. So this is actually can all be automated with minimal uh, work for whoever is doing it. And then in the end, it would be uh, the work of the radiologist to more or less do a readout of this. So this would be very likely possible at the moment. It's more manual than automatic. Uh, but I think if, uh, if there was a, a high... Um, uh, like a, a need for it, or if the people would like to try it, I think an automation would be fairly easily implemented. And in respect to, to studies and so forth, so as you said, um, I had in, in mind, and this is something that uh, we're working on at the moment, is so less uh, some of the patients that we had that had the disc degeneration, they then either got a spinal fusion or a prosthetic implant. And what we uh, want to assess as a, as a follow-up study is actually look at the adjacent levels and look at them pre-operation and then uh, one year post-operation and see, do we actually see a, a change in the, the patterns or also the calcium density in these adjacent uh, IVD levels? Um, because this kind of goes into the direction, as you were saying, where is fusion necessary, where isn't it? And to see, um, because it's, it's been reported, right, that fusion and uh, lead to degeneration of neighboring discs. And it would be interesting to see, is it really um, a direct, uh, 
more or less uh, caused from the fusion that these disks degenerate? Or is it possible, for example, that neighboring disks are already starting to degenerate or have a functional uh, malfunction, I should say, and that through the fusion or the uh, prosthetic implant, we're actually just promoting this to move along faster. So this would be just, in this sense, interesting to see uh, if we have these, these spines that we're looking at, looking at neighboring levels, looking at them pre-operation and then post-operation, and uh, then see what will happen if those that already show certain um, functional loss, if this gets worse after a fusion in the neighboring, or do they remain the same, or do healthy uh, discs also then show uh, function loss? And this would be an interesting study because this would maybe then also help narrow down who do you want to fuse and who do you not want to fuse? Because if, if per se on the MRI, you see um, uh, only one disc is degenerated, the neighboring disc, they look fine on MRI, so we'll just fuse this disc. But if we then look at the functionality of the disc through the CTOM, then you might say, oh, okay, I see the neighboring disc is also starting to lose functionality. So if I fuse this disc, I'll probably promote uh, a degeneration in the neighboring, in this neighboring disc. Uh, and possibly also it could be vice versa. That one says, oh, okay, they all look fine. So this is a perfect patient to fuse. Um, and as I said, uh, also one of the things that, or one of the main reasons that I did this was actually the regenerative medicine approach, just because all the regenerative medicine approaches or biological therapies, they always assess pain management, which of course is the most important. Um, but it's always hard to say how much is placebo, uh, how long lasting is it, uh, because follow-ups usually aren't that long in these uh, trials is then to see uh, possibly, do we also really have a functional recovery after a, a regenerative medicine approach, especially when we're looking at MSCs or uh, other uh, factors that are being um, more or less uh, added to the disc. And there I can already say, so I've worked with, um, with a group in the Netherlands um, they have been doing dog studies and then actually doing uh, so a regenerative medicine approach. And they provided me with the MRI and the CT data of these dogs. And I then actually did the CTOM of these dogs. And we can actually see that in uh, some cases, we actually see a recovery of the functionality. So we, we can clearly see, uh, so they have enough controls and everything that you have the healthy disc, you have the degenerative control, and then different controls for every treatment that they're doing. And we can actually show that we can recover some functionality with some treatments, uh, even though it, this is also seen in a Furman scale, um, but it still has a, a validation that we actually have a quantitative measure in the sense of a functional output of this. So this was kind of the idea where I saw that this method could be used. Uh, but again, I only know from the regenerative medicine field uh, what is needed, and I'm always open for any clinicians uh, to get in contact with us and say, ah, this method would be great to assess this or that and uh, talk about providing data that one could do a study on this. And I definitely think, as you mentioned, that um, 
it's a very interesting marker to be used in basic science study for evaluation of um, any uh, possible interventional method for this degeneration. But I can tell you as a clinician, if this is a study that can be easily incorporated to the daily clinical practice, either through an automated um, software or something like that, I can see a, a, the, the richness of the spatial information that it provides could directly impact our, our daily practice. I can say, for instance, I'm, let's say I'm, I have a patient with a grade one spondylitis disease and radiculopathy, and I'm planning to fuse that patient. And I could use uh, an A-leaf, an X-leaf, or a T-leaf, uh, a PLEAF, or what uh, um, several types of interbody techniques. And if I have, for example, and we know that one of the major problems with an interbody uh, fusion is, or one of the risks of the procedure that can lead to a hardware failure later is um, cage subsidence. And, mm -hmm. and it's something that it, it sometimes it's hard to predict. And it, even though not every subsiding needs an intervention, um, I had a few patients that they were doing great after a fusion and then they had a minor trauma they had an increasing back pain and you get a CT scan and lo and behold, your cage has some subsidence. And especially now that we've been using more expandable cages, there's some literature showing that um, the rates of subsidence for expandable cages may be even higher than for static cages. So I'm telling that because I can easily see a patient in uh, a scenario where I can, I'm planning a, a fusion for a patient and I get um, a CT scan with this a, a spatial map of the mineralization of the end plate. And it shows, for example, that um, the, 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 the lateral third of the end plates, both the cranial and the caudal, are, are, are very mineralized. So probably in those cases, I would choose to address, get my cage exactly in the, into that region to avoid subsidence and probably do a plea. Or conversely, that if, you, if, if that study shows me uh, that the mineralization is mainly the central portion of the of the disc, and the and the periphery is is less mineralized. I may choose, for example, a banana cage with a tea leaf and try to park the cage exactly in in that region. So uh, it's definitely a very interesting technique that once we see it bridging from the basic science uh, realm to the clinical practice, it could have a direct impact upon. Uh, the way we manage the patients and choose our surgical techniques. No, definitely. So this is actually very interesting. Uh, also, just in this regard, because we're at the moment also doing a study where we're actually looking at the, the micro architecture of the, um, of the entire vertebra. So where we did micro CT scans and are actually looking at dorsal ventral in different layering to more or less determine what exactly is the the microstructure of the entire vertebrae? And could this possibly have actually a role in the subsidence of, of cages? Uh, but we're only looking at healthy uh, individuals where we, where we got these micro CT scans from and only on uh, one kind of uh, vertebra. Uh, and this might be interesting in, in one regard because we're actually also combining the CTOAM with, uh, with these micro CTs to more or less compare. And uh, we, we hope to actually publish uh, this this year, um, which would maybe uh, further also be of interest uh, for that work. So For sure. And, and a very simple study, for example, 
in in the the setting of spine fusion would be to analyze patients. Um, we always get, for example, I always do my fusions with an O-arm spin and intraoperative CT scan for navigation. So we have a CT scan for every patient that I'm fusing. So I can see if I'm able to evaluate, to perform, use that data and ask the radiologist to perform an osteoabsorptiometry analysis of the preoperative CT. And then I, I may obtain another CT in like six months or a year, and then try to correlate those findings with or try to analyze patients with and without subsidence and see if there's any difference in the data in terms of the bone mineralization to see if that's a predictive factor for subsidence or the, to unveil uh, several um, other important uh, parameters that may, may uh, affect the long, long-term clinical outcomes. So uh, I think CT scan, we always have most surgeons tend to have a CT scan nowadays uh, preoperatively for one reason or another, especially because this is the first study that even uh, primary care physicians order for patients with back pain before the, the MRI. And if, if this can help us not only to predict our, uh, the, the technique we use, but even the outcomes of the surgery, or as you mentioned, um, help us assist in the decision between fusing only one level or doing the fusion the other level because it's already meaningful degenerated or in the case of the CT, um, there's a, a very increased mineralization which spans the almost the whole end plate, even though the MRI is not that remarkable for degeneration, it may be something that, that has a direct impact upon the clinical outcomes of our surgeries. And this is something that I'm actually very happy to hear because uh... Uh, while doing this study and implementing uh, this this work, I I couldn't imagine uh, what kind of a scope uh, it could actually take for clinicians. So I'm very happy that it has potential to work in different disciplines and that more studies could come out of this. So uh, I I can say for my part that uh, anybody that that has maybe data uh, where he says, "Ooh, uh, I have pre post op uh, CT data." and I know if something failed or worked, uh, we could get together, I could analyze this data, and uh, this could possibly just uh, more or less improve the field and help understand how things are going forward. Perfect. And we'll provide your contact uh, at the end of this podcast, and even the articles that we mentioned before, we'll provide uh, a link to our, our listeners. Uh, of course, you can find uh, all... Uh, Max informations as the corresponding author of the NASJ uh, paper. But I thank you very much for your time. And this was a very interesting discussion. And congratulations again, again on your study. And we thank also our NASJ listeners and those watching us on YouTube for your time. And um, we look forward to see uh, further research from your group uh, on this very frontline uh, research topic. Thank you.